If you notice the last verse of the processional hymn that we've just sung together, the words go as follows, for lo, He comes at His command, all nations shall in judgment stand, in justice robed, throned in light, the Lord shall judge, dispensing right. The words of the hymn are an excellent prefiguring of the subject matter that we will find this evening in the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. And so this evening I will be reading from chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, and reading through verse 16. Romans 2, 1 to 16. I'll ask the congregation to stand for the reading of the Word of God. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are measuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first, and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, These, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel." 
the word of God for the people of God. Please be seated. Let's pray. Again, our Father, as we turn our attention to this word that in this segment of it falls hard upon our ears, heavy upon our hearts, as we squirm beneath the warnings that we hear in it, we pray that you will pierce our hardened hearts, that we may understand and embrace the truth of these words. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. I had a professor once who spoke of a brilliant Christian apologist who my professor said when he engaged in debate with his opponents that his arguments were so compelling that he reduced his adversary to ashes, and when he was finished with the argument, he dusted off the spot where his adversary had stood. I couldn't help but think of that uh, description in preparing this evening's sermon on the second chapter of Romans. We remember that the letter in its original form did not have chapter divisions or verse divisions, and so there is no actual break between chapter 1 and chapter 2. But at the end of chapter 1 last week, if you were tracking with the text, you had to sense that you were hoping that Paul would get over this indictment that he gives of all people under the revealed law of God and get on with the good news. How long can he torment us with the oppressive character of the law and of our sin before he gives us some relief? And I was thinking that by the end of chapter 1, as ghastly as it was, that you might uh, think that tonight you would get that break that you were wishing for, like the members of Jonathan Edwards' congregation after he preached one of his stirring sermons of the judgment of God and the threat of eternal damnation in hell, one of the parishioners cried out, but Mr. Edwards, is there no mercy with God? And Edwards had to remind them that they have to wait to the following Sabbath before they got that part of the message. Well, if you were hoping to get that good news tonight, your hopes were in vain because the apostle is not finished with us yet by any means. Before we get to the gospel, the good news of justification by faith alone, we have to be brought kicking and screaming, if necessary, before the holy standard of God's law so that we might be duly persuaded of our need for the gospel. And so Paul continues his somewhat relentless indictment of our sinfulness here in chapter 2, where he now directs his comments specifically to the Jewish community of his day. When he says, therefore, you know, it always 
slays me when I see a chapter beginning with the word therefore, because the word therefore signifies a transition from an argument to a conclusion. And why in the world would you divide a chapter right in the middle when you're just now coming to the conclusion? But whoever the circuit rider did uh, while he was riding horseback and made these chapter divisions, uh, he maybe was asleep that night in the saddle. But in any case, Paul says, therefore, you are inexcusable. In light of all that he's just spread out before us, of the universal rejection and suppression of God's manifest self-revelation that penetrates everybody's mind, that everybody knows with clarity of God's eternal power and deity, and that God is holy, and that yet this universal rebellion of the human race, that even though they know that the sins that they practice are worthy of death, they not only continue to practice them, but encourage other people to do it as well. And that was the argument, now the conclusion. Therefore, Paul says, you're without excuse, O man. Now, we might, uh, when we read this, think that the O man is a generic address to any human being, when in reality that descriptive term, O man, was a common form of address that was used in antiquity between Jews. And so when Paul addresses these comments to the one he describes as O man, he is clearly speaking to Jewish people. And he says, you are inexcusable. He could say, O Jew, whoever you are who judge, for in whenever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. Here, the sin of hypocrisy is in view in the words of the apostle. He's now chastising his kinsmen according to the flesh, Israel, for their judgmental attitude toward the Gentiles. And he's pulling them up short and saying, who do you think you are? You who condemn these Gentiles who practice the behavior forms that they do when you are doing the very same thing. This is the essence of hypocrisy, and it's the particular threat of doom to anyone who dares to stand in a pulpit and uh, correct sinners in the congregation when every preacher is himself a sinner and runs that very liability of condemning others for doing the very things that he does. And so even though these words are addressed specifically to Jews, there is that more universal application of the text. And what was true for Israel is true for us, that if we condemn other people for doing the very things that we do, then by our condemning them, we are showing our awareness of the wrongness of these activities, and we are, in effect, condemning ourselves. Because if others are exposed to condemnation for the sins that they practice, that we practice as well, then obviously we are announcing our own condemnation. He says, but we know that the judgment of God 
is according to truth against those who practice such things. Let me say it again. We know that God's judgment is according to truth. We see judgments made, verdicts rendered in courtrooms often in our lifetime where we wonder, we scratch our head and say, was justice really done here? Or was this simply a show of a titanic struggle between able attorneys and to the victor belongs the spoils? Somehow in the midst of this combat between the two sides, prosecution and defense, somewhere along the line, the pursuit of justice itself perhaps was lost. People are persuaded by clever arguments, and so as a result, justice is not always served in the courtroom or in the decisions that we make within our community, in the church, and even in the family. But the one thing we can be confident of is that the just judgment of God is always according to the truth. I remember when I began my teaching career, I was teaching philosophy at the university, and we came in the course of studies to an analysis of the great Prussian philosopher, Immanuel Kant, who in his classic work in which he uh, criticized the uh, traditional arguments for the existence of God in his critique of pure reason, he came to the conclusion of agnosticism that through natural reason we can't really come to a knowledge of God. And yet he followed up that work of agnosticism with the critique of practical reason, and there he argued practically for theism because he was saying that even though we can't know for sure theoretically that God exists, we must affirm the existence of God for ethics to be possible. And if you recall that Kant uh, pursued his, his investigation of human conscience, and he said everywhere we go, it doesn't matter how remote the people are in this world, that we discover every person on this planet has some sense of oughtness, what he called the categorical imperative, some sense of moral duty that seems to be ineradicable in the human conscience. Behaviors may degenerate into all kinds of corruption, but there always remains some vestige of light of conscience even in the most corrupt person. And Kant asked this question, how do we account for this universal sense of oughtness and what would be necessary, he asked, for that sense of oughtness that pressures every one of us, what would be necessary for that sense to be meaningful? And he said this, he said, from a practical basis, if ethics are to be meaningful, then somehow, somewhere, justice has to prevail. Because if in the final analysis, the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer, 
Why should anybody endeavor to be righteous? Justice is absolutely essential, Kant said, for a meaningful ethic. And then he went on to speculate. He says, well, we know that justice doesn't occur perfectly in this world, and for justice to occur ultimately, there has to be certain things that will follow. We have to have life after death. We have to go someplace where the ultimate verdict can be rendered over our behavior. And once there, we have to be exposed to a perfect judgment. And for that to happen, we would have to have a judge who himself is perfect. He would have to be omniscient because he could not overlook some detail that might be exculpatory. He would have to know every perfect, in perfection, every aspect of all the extenuating circumstances for why people behave the way they do. So the perfect judge would have to have a perfect knowledge of all the factors of the case. And not only would he have to have perfect knowledge, but he would have to be righteous himself, not given to bribes or corruption rendering a decision that would be motivated by his own self-interest or by partiality. And so the judge would have to be perfectly righteous. But even then, if you have life after death and a, and a judge who's omniscient and a judge who's perfectly righteous, that, those things together do not guarantee that justice will prevail. What else is necessary? He said, the perfect judge to ensure justice must also be omnipotent. He must have the ability and the power to make certain that his decision was carried out. And so, for practical purposes, Kant argued, if our ethics are going to be meaningful and if society is going to be possible then we must affirm the existence of God. And that's the idea that Paul is saying here when he is saying that the judgment of God is according to truth. Nobody can stand before the judgment seat of God and when God declares his verdict, complain by saying, that's not fair. Or there's something you don't understand, God. There's something you've overlooked here. If you really knew the motivations of my heart, you wouldn't be so severe in your judgment. I mean, no. Beloved, your consciences tell you that every last person in this room at some point will be held accountable before their Creator. Believer and unbeliever alike, Even though the believer passes out of condemnation, we still have to stand before God and be judged. And that judgment will harbor no secrets. It will be perfect. It will be accurate, for it will be according to truth. You see, every time, and Paul will get to this later, but every time we read about descriptions of the judgment before the presence of God in the Scriptures. 
the human response to that judgment is always what? Silence. Every mouth will be stopped. We will see the futility of debate. The discussion is over when God renders his verdict. For we know that his judgment will be according to truth. judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Dear friends, this is the deepest hope of every unrepentant person in the world. The deepest hope that is harbored in the heart of corrupt humanity is that somehow we'll escape. You remember the story, W.C. Fields, in his hospital room, on his deathbed, friend comes to see him, shocked to find W.C. Fields lying in bed reading the Bible. W.C. Fields was not known for his religious devotion. He said, W.C., what are you doing? And in characteristic W.C. Fields fashion, he says, looking for loopholes. I said, that's what everybody does. Thinks there's going to be a loophole, a way of escape from an omniscient, holy, righteous God. There's no way to escape that judgment save through the way that that holy God has given to the world, which is the way of the cross. But we don't want that way. We want to find another way, a way to escape. There is no escape. You you think that you will escape the judgment of God? Oh, it gets worse. Or maybe I just forget the rest of chapter 2. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering? It's a rhetorical question. And Paul is saying to his readers, is it possible that you actually hate and despise the goodness of God? The patience of God? The long-suffering of God? What does he mean here when he asks the question, do you despise the goodness of God? What he's getting at is this, do you take the goodness of God lightly? Do you take it for granted? Do you assume that because God is good, there is no room for judgment in Him? Isn't that the greatest religious myth that is pervasive in our culture today? God is this cosmic bellhop who is at our beck and call 
He's a celestial Santa Claus. And all we have to do is come and ask Him what we want, and He'll provide it for us. And He's so loving. He's so kind. He's so merciful. He's so good that He would never punish anybody. Isn't that the myth? If you thought about that for five minutes, you see through it. I mean, seriously, if you elected a judge to the Supreme Court, you would want him to be a good judge, wouldn't you? But a judge who refuses to punish evil is not a good judge. A judge who leaves wickedness go unpunished is an unjust judge. A corrupt judge is not good at all. But God's goodness, the one who judges all the earth, who does what is right, is a God who promises judgment against evil. And do we so despise His goodness that we assume there's no room in His goodness for justice? That's insanity, people. If God is good, then He will judge, and He will judge according to truth. And we ought not to despise the riches of His goodness, His forbearance, His long-suffering. Don't we understand why God hasn't lowered the boom yet? What happens? In His patience, God is forbearing. He puts up with our rebellion. He puts up with our sin. He knows every sin you've ever committed, but He hasn't exposed them all. He hasn't visited His wrath on you for all of your sins. And so you wipe your forehead and you say, oh, isn't God good? He is so good that He's never going to deal with these things. Don't you realize why God is forbearing? That Paul is saying is that the whole point of God's patience and forbearing is to lead you to repentance. But in reality, where does it lead us? Not to repentance but the recalcitrance, to the hardened heart, to the stiff neck. Oh, he hasn't punished us so far? Must mean I'm okay. And he's not going to visit his judgment upon us. Now, I keep telling you, it gets worse. And here it gets worser and worser. So you may want to cover your ears with what's coming next. Don't you know that the goodness of God is supposed to lead you to repentance, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart? And what we have next is one of the scariest verses in all the Bible. In accordance with your heart and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath, and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. I had a friend once who said, well, I'm lusting after that woman. I might as well go ahead and get on with the act, because I'm already guilty of the sin 
according to Jesus, that if I've looked at a woman with lust, I've violated the prohibition against adultery. So I can't get myself in any more trouble than I'm already in. And I said, be very, very careful here. We have a tendency to think that at the judgment day, you're either in or you're out, guilty or innocent. But even in our earthly courts, if somebody commits nine murders, they are on trial for nine counts of murder. And God considers every single sin we ever commit in thought, word, and deed. Each one is exposed to his perfect judgment according to the truth. And the metaphor that Paul uses here is the metaphor of banking, where you begin to save your money. And maybe with each paycheck, you take a small portion of it and you put it in the bank. You deposit it. You are building up slowly but surely over a long period of time a treasure, saving up for the rainy day. And it's that metaphor that Paul is using here is that every time we sin, we are adding an indictment against ourselves, treasuring up wrath against the day of wrath. Do you really believe that? I don't think the world believes that. That every single day we continue without repenting. We are depositing into the account of God's judgment, future wrath. People think that if you go to hell, you go to hell. What's the difference? Again, I had a professor who said the sinner in hell would give everything that he owned and do anything that he could to make the number of his sins during his lifetime one less. Let me say it again. The sinner in hell would do everything he could, give everything he had to make the number of sins in his lifetime one less because he will be judged according to his deeds. And there are various degrees of punishment in hell. Why? Because hell is the place where God manifests His perfect justice. And the punishment always fits the crime. And if there are 30 sins, you're going to be punished 30 ways. And while we remain in this hardened heart, hearts of stone, we just add to the indictment moment by moment. That's a scary, scary idea. You're treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation 
of the righteous judgment of God. First of all, the judgment of God is called according to truth. Now it's called according to righteousness. Who will render to each according to his deeds. Now, wait a minute. Isn't the apostle getting us ready for the grand doctrine of justification by faith alone? And now he's talking about our being judged according to our works. Let me put it this way. Our justification is by faith alone. But our rewards in heaven will be distributed according to our works. That's why our Lord told His followers, those who are justified by faith and faith alone, to treasure up things in heaven. And He told us that on the day of judgment, even though our works carry no merit, they earn nothing Nevertheless, as Augustine said, in distributing rewards according to our levels of obedience, God is crowning His own works in us. We too, on the day of judgment, will be judged according to our works. God will subject our lives to the closest scrutiny. And listen to the distinction that Paul makes here. God will give eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Now, be careful. Paul is not saying here that the way to heaven is through good works. He's going to spend half the epistle denying that. But those who are the redeemed are those who now set their hearts on heaven and will gain eternal life, and they will be the people who will be seeking the glory of God, the honor of God, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. Isn't that an interesting distinction there? You see, what, what the Bible says is that God is not just angry at our sin, He's indignant about it. It's an affront to God for us to go along our lives living in constant defiance and rebellions against His law. When we rebel against Him, we destroy the dignity of God, and God is indignant. Who do we think we are as His creatures? to do what we want to do rather than what God commands us to do. That's what Paul is saying, that those who seek their own will, self-seeking, don't obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish, on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there's no partiality with God. Don't come before God and say, I was a member of St. Andrew's. Don't come before God and say, I'm a descendant of Abraham. That counts for nothing. He will render to every person according to their deeds. No partiality with God. Quickly. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. 
And as many have sinned in the law will be judged by the law, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although they don't have the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. This is a vastly misunderstood text. Most people who read this text think that what Paul is saying is this, that he's, he's rebuking the Jews, and he said, you Jewish people, you have the law, you have the Ten Commandments, you have the Old Testament, and in spite of the fact that you have the law, you don't do the law. Just knowing the law isn't going to give you a way of escape. You have to obey the law. You have the law, but you don't do the law. Where the pagans out there, the Gentiles out there, they don't know anything about the Decalogue. They've never heard of Moses. They don't know the Old Testament, but they're doing the things of the law. Now, the suggestion is here that the Jews who have the law are sinning against God, while the Gentile pagans who don't have the law are obeying the law. No, 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 no. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying those who have the law perish with the law. Those who don't have the law perish without the law. Why? Because they demonstrate by their actions, by what the philosophers call the jus gentium, the law of the nations, that even if they've never seen the Ten Commandments, God has written His law on their hearts, and their behavior reveals that they know in their hearts the difference between right and wrong. They don't have the law written down, but they do the things that have to do with the law, and they have a sense of right and wrong. So those who have the law perish with the law. Those who don't have it perish without it because both of them, Jew and Greek together, have consistently defied God. And they will be judged according to the light that they have been given. The Jews will have a greater judgment because they have greater light. But the Gentiles are not without light. Now let me just quickly, if I can, tied chapter 1, chapter 2 together. In chapter 1, Paul develops the concept of immediate general revelation. Let me just get a little theological with you here for a second. Immediate general revelation is that revelation that God gives of Himself through a medium. And the medium that communicates His eternal power and deity is the medium of the created order. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows forth His handiwork. Paul said the invisible things of Him are clearly perceived through the things that are made. And so the medium of nature reveals God to all people. And that's what we call immediate general revelation because it's revelation that is communicated through some medium. But in addition to immediate general revelation, we also speak, because of chapter 2, of immediate general revelation. And here, the term immediate 
is not with respect to time. It's not something that happens quickly. But immediate general revelation is that revelation that God gives without some intervening medium. To make it simple, it's the knowledge of himself that he plants in your soul. Without ever reading the Bible, without ever opening your eyes and looking at nature, before you take a breath, God already has planted in your soul an immediate knowledge and awareness of him, and it's found in your conscience. And so we know God both immediately through nature, and we know him immediately through the sense of his deity that we have in our souls. So now Paul talks about the nature of the human heart, that in that human heart God has revealed himself so that everybody knows, people know what's right and what isn't. We can practice our sins over and over and over again, get everybody in our community to think and agree with us that it's okay to do those things, but we know better. When did an adulterer not know that he was violating his wife or she, her husband, in that act? When did a murderer not realize that the wanton destruction of another human being was a sin against humanity and a sin against God. We know that. We know that it's evil to cheat, to lie, to slander, to covet, because God has given us a conscience. And even though the conscience can be seared, And we can become so hardened in our heart that Jeremiah said that Israel had gained the forehead of a harlot. The people had lost their ability to blush. Even that can happen to us as we are delivered over to our sins. But even in that terrible, corrupt state, we do not vanquish totally the light of God's revelation in our conscience. We show the work of the law written in our hearts because our consciences bear witness. They bear witness against us. And between themselves, their thoughts accuse or excuse us in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel, because essential to the gospel is the announcement that Christ has been appointed the perfect judge of all of the earth. We will be judged by Christ on the day of judgment. The Father has delegated that role to His Son, and He will reveal the secrets of our hearts. Jesus himself warned his own generation that what you do in secret, he said, will be made manifest, be open, be public. All the skeletons in all the closets will be open. That's why we need to be covered 
That's what redemption is all about. It's a divine cover-up. The last thing I want to ever do is have to appear before God like Adam and Eve after they sinned, naked and uncovered. That's why Paul is telling us it is absolutely essential for us that we gain the cloak of the righteousness of Christ. So when every secret is made manifest in that judgment, we'll be covered by the perfection of Christ's righteousness. Mine won't do it. That's why, again, I want to cry when I hear people say to me, I don't need Christ. My life's going along fine. I'm happy. I'm successful. My conscience isn't bothering me. What do I need with Jesus? There's nothing you need more desperately than someone to cover you when every secret is made manifest. Again, we're not yet to the good news. God God willing, and if you're willing for more of this, uh, next Sabbath evening, we'll continue this because what Paul is doing here is he's going to bring the whole world, the whole world, every last one of us, before the tribunal of God and show that every last one of us is guilty until we stop giving excuses and we shut our mouths and go to the gospel. But in the meantime, we must tremble before the law of a just and holy God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, is there not mercy in Thee? We thank You for the riches of that mercy, the riches of that grace, which we have a tendency to take lightly and even at times to despise. But in our sober moments, we are glad, O God, that You are good. Because as miserable as this world is in its fallenness, we can't imagine what things would be like if You were not good. But we pray, O Father, that Your goodness would bring us to its desired end, that we may confess our sins and fall upon Christ as our only hope in this world and the next. For we ask it in His name.